Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. On October 13, 2012, author Stephen Harris spoke at the opening of the new MacArthur Memorial Visitor Center which also doubled as the opening of a brand new exhibit on World War I, entitled Under the Rainbow, the 42nd Rainbow Division in the Great War. Harris is the author of several books on World War I, including Duty, Honor, Privilege, New York Silk Stocking Regiment, and The Breaking Up of the Hindenburg Line. Harlem's Hellfighters, the African-American 369th Infantry in World War I, and Duffy's War, Father Francis Duffy, Wild Bill Donovan, and the Irish Fighting 69th in World War I. While at the memorial, Harris spoke about the Fighting 69th, Father Francis Duffy, Wild Bill Donovan, and Joyce Kilmer. We hope you enjoy his presentation. Thank you for being here. I appreciate uh, speaking for the MacArthur Memorial uh, group. And uh, I've met a lot of uh, people here for the first time. And uh, it's, been, it's been an honor. I'd like to talk about a poem this afternoon and the story behind it. But first, I'd like to tell you why I left the corporate world where I'd been editor of General Electric's magazine, Monogram, to write my trilogy on New York City's National Guard regiments in the Great War. It's because of my great uncle, the cartoonist and magazine illustrator, Rayburn Van Buren. He was in the old 7th Regiment of the 27th Empire Division, where he'd been art editor of its magazine, Gas Attack. I was close to him and often visited him at his studio out in Great Neck, Long Island, where we talked about his bohemian adventures in New York City as a struggling artist and his experiences in the war. At war's end, the New York Times called him the American Barnes Father after the great British illustrator of World War I, Bruce Brown's father. Here are some of Ray's gag drawings for Gas Attack magazine. You can see nowhere in France. Here's a soldier has a date with a girl, a dream come true. Here he is getting out of the army, oh boy, getting civilian clothes. And here's one of the soldier going back to the town that he fought in. After the war, he illustrated more than 350 stories for the Saturday Evening Post and a like number for Collier's Magazine. He next created the comic strip, Abby and Slats, with Al Cap of Little Abner fame. And after he died in the 1980s, I chanced to read the letters he'd written from the Western Front to his mother, my great-grandmother, and knew right away that here was a story that had to be told. After writing Duty, Honor, Privilege about the wealthy Upper crust lads from the 7th Regiment, I tackled the African Americans known as Harlem Hellfighters, and then, of course, I had to do the Irish in Duffy's War. Now let's turn to the Rainbow Division, and more importantly, to the Fighting 69th. Many of you know the story, and it's been told already here today, of how the 42nd Division got its nickname, and I just want to repeat it because I have to lead into something else. When it had been decided that its makeup was to include 
National Guard units from the District of Columbia in 26 states, including a yet-to-be-named infantry regiment from New York City, MacArthur remarked for the, that the division would cover America like a rainbow. At that time, all of Gotham was astir about the, which regiment would be selected to this elite division. Among the regiments vying for a place uh, were my great-uncle's well-heeled 7th on Park Avenue, a regiment that first used the words National Guard, but had never been engaged in any American conflict whatsoever except putting down labor strikes. This is their armory on Park Avenue. It's perhaps the greatest army in the, armory in the United States. Over in Brooklyn, the 14th, which had a sterling record in the Civil War, and down on Lexington Avenue, the fighting 69th, also with a sterling Civil War record, and with 95% of its men Irish, and almost all of them Catholic. Each of the city's regiments believed it had a chance to be selected, except one up in Harlem, the baby 15th, just a year old. It would, win later go, it, would win, it, would, it would later win glory in the World War as the Hillfighters. But as one wag said back in 1917, black is not the color in the rainbow. As we know, it was the 69th that got the honor to complete the ranks of the Rainbow Division. When word reached the 69th Armory that it had been selected a couple of Irish guardsmen, First Sergeant Billy Heaton and Corporal Frank Curtis, got to talking. Rainbow, my eye, cracked Sergeant Heaton. Tis a fancy name for the soldiers. Rainbow Division A, full of colors with the green predominating. Corporal Curtis chimed in, but with no yellow, Sarge, back or front. For the old 7th, it was a huge disappointment not to be selected, but at least it had the small satisfaction of transferring 350 of its own men to the 69th so the strength of the Irish regiment could meet the War Department's requirement of 3,700 men to an infantry regiment. Here, the 7th transfers are marching from their armory on Park Avenue to the 69th down on Lexington. The 14th got some satisfaction, too, because it also had to transfer 350 of its men, as did the 23rd Regiment. With all those new men over a 1,000 strong, the 69th found itself losing its Irish character, but not its Irish traditions, which are still honored today. The Fighting 69th is arguably, arguably the most famous regiment in U.S. history. Its fame certainly got a boost with a 1940 film, The Fighting 69th, starring James Cagney and Pat O'Brien, his father Francis Duffy. The 69th was organized in Lower Manhattan in 1849 with one purpose, to learn to fight as disciplined soldiers so its men could go back to Ireland and kick the despised British out of the Emerald Isle. Its most celebrated commander in those days was Colonel Michael Corcoran, a political outlaw from Ireland. In 1860, when the Prince of Wales made a tour of the United States, all of New York City's militias had been ordered to march behind him and Mayor Fernando Wood in a grand homecoming parade up Broadway. As the troops assembled down at the battery, one regiment was noticeably absent. Corcoran had refused to have his men march behind the hated prince, an insult to all good Irishmen. He was arrested and ordered court-martialed. By the time the military got around to the court-martial, America was embroiled in the Civil War. Corcoran was off the hook. He led his regiment out of New York 
past old St. Patrick's Cathedral to Virginia, where it fought in the first battle of Bull Run. Here, Corcoran fell in Confederate hands. For the next 13 months, he rotted away in a southern prison. Finally paroled, he returned to New York a hero. Promoted to Brigadier General, he organized and recruited Corcoran's Irish Legion. On December 22, 1863, a fall from his horse killed him. He was buried in New York's first cavalry cemetery, known as the City of the Celtic Dead. The 69th fought in all the major battles of the Civil War. General Robert E. Lee, after witnessing the regiment's courage, called it the Fighting 69th. One of the Confederate regiments it, it, it faced back was the 4th Alabama. Later renumbered the 167th Infantry as part of the 84th Brigade, 42nd Division. The two regiments had a strained relationship during the World War, to say the least. But here we see the 167th in action on the Western Front. The 69th is still an active out unit. It has been in the Pacific during the Second World War, where its chaplain was killed. More recently, it's been to Iraq and Afghanistan, where it took casualties. In the armory's lobby are two banners that proudly proclaim, and rightfully so, from Bull Run to Baghdad. Over the years, the 69th has had many great soldiers, perhaps none greater than its chaplain of the early 1900s, Father Francis Duffy. So revered was Father Duffy that today his statue graces New York's Times Square. It's the right spot for the statue, for his parish was there, the Church of the Holy Cross, that served not only the environs around Broadway and 42nd Street, but also a good part of Hell's Kitchen. Of course, another famous World War I soldier was Duffy's close friend, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient and America's spymaster for organizing the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, while Bill Donovan, shown here to the left of Father Duffy. During the war, Donovan was not the commander of the regiment. In fact, throughout the war, the 69th, then the 165th, had five different commanders, none of them Irish, none of them Catholic. That did not sit well with Father Duffy. On the very day Donovan transferred into the 69th in the spring of 1917, the chaplain began a camp, champ, campaign to get him to command the regiment. He did not succeed until just after the war while the regiment was on the Rhine River. But he had to enlist the help of General MacArthur to get Donovan a promotion. MacArthur proved a willing co-conspirator. And at last, on Christmas Eve, 1918, Donovan took command and led the 69th home. The third most famous soldier in those days, and the one I'll focus on, was Joyce Kilmer, the author of the popular poem, Trees. Another of Kilmer's well-known poems is in the wood they call Rouge Bouquet. The story behind this poem is worth telling because it was in this wood, this Rouge Bouquet, that the 42nd Division suffered its first major deadly encounter with the Germans. A lot of people assume that Joyce Kilmer was a woman because of his name. He was named after Elijah Brooks Joyce, a minister of Christ Episcopal Church in East Brunswick, New Jersey, where he had been born in 1886. His mother was a devout Episcopalian and proudly traced her family's connection to the church to 17th century England. I won't say that Kilmer, a critic for the New York Times when America entered the war, was a mama's boy, but his mother doted on him with what I consider a smothering love. 
She couldn't stand it that he loved his wife more than he loved her. She'd hoped he'd become an Episcopal minister, like his pious namesake. Thus, she was terribly crushed when her only son proclaimed he was an atheist. She was crushed again when he later changed his mind about being an atheist because of his daughter, Rose, who was dying of infantile paralysis and converted to Catholicism. In a letter to a priest, he explained how he went to the Church of Holy Innocence near the Times building just off Broadway every day. I prayed in this church for faith. When faith came, it came, I think, by the way of my little paralyzed daughter. In 1913, his poem, Trees, was published. It begins, as we all know, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. It ends, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. A critic for a Catholic magazine observed that Kilmer saw the hand of God in everything, in the trees of the forest, in the roaring world, and in the midnight train that brought him safely home to his cottage in the Jersey Hills. When, Kil when America declared war on Germany in April 1917, Kilmer enlisted in the old 7th Regiment. He claimed later that he really wanted to join the 69th because the people I like best there are the wild Irish. He even claimed he was half Irish. But when he was called on it, reminded that he had no Irish blood at all, Kilmer shrugged. Well, I was never good at math. He then met Father Duffy, hoping the chaplain would help him transfer into the 69th, which he did. After meeting with Kilmer, Duffy wrote in his diary, quote, nothing of the long-haired variety about him, a sturdy fellow, manly, humorous, interesting. He added, Kilmer will confer upon the 69th the gift of immortality. And oh, how true that turned out when he composed in the wood they call Rouge Bouquet. The 42nd Division sailed for Europe in the autumn of 1917. Major Donovan, commander of the 69th 1st Battalion, was ticked off that his division was not the 1st National Guard Division to head to the fighting in France. That honor belonged to the 26th, the Yankee Division. Donovan believed it was the influence of those powerful Boston Brahmins that sent the Yankees on ahead of the Rainbows. In France, the regiment traveled by troop train eastward to the village of Grand, where it spent Christmas Eve. It began to snow and snowed for three days. And as the New Yorkers marched out of the village on December 26th toward the Vosages Mountains and then on to Longau near the Marne River, for more training, the snow was knee-deep. With wind blowing ice crystals into their faces, the troops had gone only a few miles when their hobnailed boots began to fall apart. For the rest of the, of the four-day march, conditions worsened. The mess wagons could not keep up, and the men tracked down in hunger. They called it their valley forge. And when they finally reached Longgow on frozen feet, they straightened up and marched into the village, belting out the song in the good old summertime. You can't kill this bunch of Brooklyn machine gunner boasted. But then they hadn't yet moved into the Lunaville sector on the Merthyr River, a subsidiary of the Moselle River and right close to German-held territory. Here in the subsector called Rouge Bouquet, each battalion in the 69th had to experience trench warfare for 10 days at a clip as part of their training. They would be mixed up with French veterans and shown the ropes. On February 27th, Donovan's 1st Battalion was the first in. 
Donovan was ready for anything that might come up. His ten days passed without a hitch, although the pounding of artillery kept everyone on edge. Wrote Company A Private, uh, Earl Pierce from Brooklyn, first you see a star. Shell pierced the darkness, illuminating the whole works. That is followed by the sharp rat-tat-tat of a Bosch machine gun. Then bullets whine over one's head only to splat against a tree. Then various colored lights would burst from the Bosch and the indescribable whistle of a shell would come to us, followed by the roar from the fragments of steel, stones, mud, and other stuff falling all around us. Then a gas signal shows and we don our gas masks. So much for life in the trenches. The first week of March, the 2nd Battalion, commanded by Major William Stakem from Manhattan's lower west side, replaced Donovan's 1st Battalion. Now, these New Yorkers were a feisty bunch. Many of them came from tough neighborhoods like the Five Points, Hell's Kitchen, the mean streets in the Bronx and in Brooklyn, as well as gritty orphans at Staten Island's Mission of the Immaculate Virgin. The first thing they did when they entered the trenches was to shake their fists at the German lines. Some of the boys even leaped atop the trenches and dared the Germans to come out and fight them man to man. The Germans responded by opening up an artillery barrage. The tough New Yorkers scurried down into their dugout homes 40 feet beneath the earth, held up by rioting timbers that had been there since the start of the war. These dugouts were not safe. First platoon from Company E scooted down inside its dugout. It smelled of earth, sweat, and other bodily odors. Once inside, the rumble of artillery seemed far away. Then a shell hit the roof of the dugout. It collapsed. Tons of dirt, sand, and timbers entombing 30 men. The darkness was absolute. A few soldiers near the stairs escaped. Alf Helmer, native of Bergen, Norway, found himself pinned in the stairwell, unable to move. He felt his feet pressing on the shoulders of a fellow soldier. He could hear the groans and screams of those trapped beneath him. His commanding officer, he would later find out, First Lieutenant John Norman, coincidentally like Helmer, a Scandinavian, had been mortally wounded. While he was dying, the lieutenant said to his men, we are fighting for a good cause. It is worthwhile. Let us die like men. Outside, it was a mad scramble to unearth the traps of soldiers below, even while the Germans continued to shell the trenches. The cave-in had left a steep, narrow pit where the roof had been much where the, where the roof had been, much like the top side of an hourglass about to run out of sand. Abraham Blaustown, a Jewish sergeant from Brooklyn, slid to the bottom of the pit. Using his tin hat as a shovel, he furiously dug into the dirt as other soldiers slid in after him. They formed a bucket brigade, passing their dirt-filled uh, dirt tin hats up to the top of the pit as fast as possible and sending them back down. Inside the dugout, lack of air was taking its toll. Recalled Alf Elmer, trapped in the stairwell, choking dust and gas stench filled the suffocating darkness. Cries and moans at first were a blur of sound with, the ag with agony, the keynote. One by one, his fellow soldiers began to die. Helmer prayed, making my peace with God. I was no longer afraid, he said. Then Helmer saw something in the pitch black that he kept to himself for years. He swore that a faint purple light rose slowly from the body of each dead soldier up toward the ceiling of the dugout where it disappeared. Meanwhile, as the soldiers outside dug with a fury, the Germans lobbed gas shells at them. Mustard gas swept over the ground. The men donned their gas, 
gas masks, and went on digging. Major Donovan, even though he was not in command of the 2nd Battalion, disobeyed orders that he could not go to the cave-in, but stay with the men in his own battalion. He went anyway. He slid down into the hole next to Blaustein and organized the rescue attempt just a little bit better. He shouted down to the trapped soldiers, we will get you out. At last, they opened up a hole. Miraculously, three soldiers were lifted out, one of them Alf Helmer. Then a German shell exploded close to them, closing up the hole once and for all, sealing in 21 soldiers. This time, there was no way out. Helmer and the others, along with two guides, were ordered to return to their command post. Another shell hit close, killing one of them, Private Edward Kelly from the Lower East Side, and wounded another, Private Stephen Navin from the Bronx. Navin, like Helmer, claimed to have seen, quote, a pale purple blob of, of light rise from Kelly's body. The light continued skyward and passed through a cloud. When Helmer got to his command post, he broke down and wept uncontrollably. Donovan and those around him, especially Sergeant Blaustein, kept on digging. Blaustein dug for eight straight hours. Finally, Donovan knew that there was nothing more that could, could be done. Later to his wife, he confessed that he wished he could have been buried there with the dead of Company E. Today, he wrote, in a little promontory in a Lorraine forest, a lieutenant and his men have done with the war. For my part, I think it's a fine thing for the regiment to have them meet so honorable a death, revenge for which is determined upon by their comrades. And really, it is only that they got a little sooner what each of us always expects. On St. Patrick's Day, Father Duffy held a command, a memorial service to the freshly fallen men. He made his altar in a stand of trees on a small hill, while in the distance could be heard the rumble of artillery. The Irish soldiers came out of the trenches, shamrocks pinned to their uniforms or stuck to their helmets and gathered round their chaplain. Top of the morning, boys, Father Duffy said to them in his thickest Irish brogue. He told them that they had been called upon, quote, to fight for human liberty and the rights of small nations. And if we rally to this noble cause, we could establish a claim on our own country, on humanity, in favor of the dear land from which so many of us, so many of us had sprung and which all of us loved. A bugler standing next to the good father then played taps while another answered from a distant hill. One soldier said the scene was as solemn as it was sublime. And then the great chaplain read Joyce Kilmer's poem which had been penned a few days earlier. It ends, St. Michael's sword darts through the air and touches the aerial on his hair. As he sees him stand saluting there, his stalwart sons and Patrick rigid column kill, rejoice that in the veins of warrior still the Gaul's blood runs, and up to heaven's doorway floats from the wood called Rouge Bouquet, a delicate cloud of bugle notes that softly say, Farewell, farewell, comrades true, born anew, peace to you. Your soul shall be where the heroes are, and your memory shine like the morning star. Brave and dear, shield is here, farewell. Father Duffy noticed when he had finished, tears had started in many an eye, especially amongst the lads of Company E. Then knowing the sorrow the poem had evoked, had the band play rollicking Irish tunes, starting with the regimental song, Gary Owen, because he said, quote, we can pay tribute to our dead, but we, mustn't, we must not lament, lament from them overmuch.
Today, the soldiers of the 69th heaped in their regiments great grand traditions from Bull Run to Baghdad in its valiant years with its 42nd Rainbow Division lead the Irish every March 17th in the St. Patrick's Day Parade while the tune Gary Owen fills crowded Fifth Avenue on past St. Patrick's Cathedral a march where in the early morning the Archbishop has held a high mass to honor the soldiers back from Iraq or Afghanistan or in 2001 at Ground Zero where its National Guard soldiers, many of them New York City firefighters and police officers who had protected and certainly saved scores of civilians. And on past Central Park. And then amid the skirl of bagpipes, the beat of drums, and the rhythmic tread of boots on the avenue back to their armory, home for more than 100 years to the fighting 69th. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.